course begins with a well-known and surprising story of someone who's at war, a soldier, and he takes captives and he falls in love with the captive woman and the Torah has a program that lets the soldier take her home and marry her. The question is why does the Torah do this? Why is the soldier allowed to do something that you would think he should not be allowed to do but the Torah says he can't? Rashi says, Lo dibra Torah elo keneged yetzahara. Basically, God knows that it's going to be too difficult or impossible for this soldier to hold himself back. So therefore, rather than risk the consequences of letting the soldier be in a situation that's going to be too big of a challenge for him, the Torah allowed him to do something it normally wouldn't allow. Meaning, really, it shouldn't be allowed. Really, it shouldn't be allowed, but because it was too difficult for him to hold back, the Torah let him do it. Rabbi Chesko Bronsky was born in Eastern Europe or Russia in 1886. He passed away in 1976. He was a Talmud. He was a student of Reb Chaim Salvechik in Brisk. He became a rabbi in Russia. I don't know if he became a rabbi first or this happened afterwards, but in 1917, the Russian Revolution happened and the communists took power in Russia. They wanted to extinguish all religion, including Judaism, and Rabbi Abramsky defended the Torah against the efforts of the Russian authorities to extinguish the Torah. Because of his efforts to strengthen Judaism in the face of communism, he was arrested in 1929, and he was sent to Siberia, where he was for five years. He wrote Chidushim, Chidushe Torah, his original Torah ideas, when he was in Siberia on cigarette papers. Through the effort of the Germans, I don't understand why exactly the details, he was saved from Siberia and he, he moved to London in 1931. And after a couple of years, he became the head of the Besdin, the Jewish court in London, where he served for 17 years. And shortly after the State of Israel was founded, in 1951, he emigrated to Israel. There's a famous story about when he was, when he lived in London, and he was the head of, of the highest rabbinic court there. And he once had to testify about something in the British courts that was relevant to Judaism. I don't know what the details were. When he was on the stand, he was asked what his position is. What's your name? Yechezko Abramsky. He said, what is, your, what is your title? I'm the head rabbi of the British Commonwealth. And I think he added, I'm the greatest rabbi, the biggest, the, the greatest scholar in the entire country. The judge said to him, Rabbi, that doesn't sound very modest. So he responded, Your Honor, I'm under oath. But the point is, is that uh, he, he was. It was probably relevant to the case. He they needed him to testify as the biggest, like the highest Jewish authority. So that's why he likely had to say that. Just another another thing. When he was in Russia, he wrote an exchange of letters with Rav Moshe Feinstein, who was also in the same situation. He was also a rabbi in Russia after communism had taken over, and they were debating a topic about if someone's allowed to go to the mikvah they, and they have an earache, they can't let water get in their ear. One technique that works to prevent water from entering your ear is you take a cotton ball and you soak it in some type of oil or something, and you, and you put it in your ear, and that stops the water from entering. So the question was, is that a chatzitza? Is that something that interferes with the water reaching every part of your body. So Rabbi Abramsky held that it was forbidden to do that, and if you went to the mikvah with that, with that thing in your ear, 
you have to go again. You have to take it out and go again. It doesn't count. And Ramosha Feinstein was lenient. He held that you're allowed to go with it in your ear. It's, it's actually a beautiful topic. We'll talk about that another time. They sent their letters. This is all recorded in the introduction to the ninth volume of, the, of Ramosha Feinstein's Chuvas. There's a little biographical introduction. It talks about this. So they both sent their, their Chuvas. They both sent their rabbinic responses about this topic to the Guttel Ador, to the greatest scholar in the generation, Chaim Ozer Grzezinski, who was a rabbi in Vilna, and he sided with Reb Moshe, parenthetically. Yeah, so he wrote a book called Chazon Yechezkel. It's a commentary on the Tosefta, which is a relatively neglected sefer. It's a very important sefer. It's something from the same time as a Mishnah. He wrote a very well-known sefer on the Tosefta. Anyway, so he pointed out, he was probably talking in London. This story is told by Rabbi Israel, Rabbi Dov Yaffa. He said he was talking to modern people, but he's, Rabbi Abramsky was probably talking to an audience in London, and he said that you see that the Torah, in this case, allowed the soldier to do something that really it didn't want to allow him to do, but because he wouldn't have been able to hold back. If the Torah prohibited it, he would have transgressed. It allowed him to do it in this case. So you, what Abramsky said is, he said many people tell him that in today's day and age, the Torah is too hard to observe. You can't keep all the laws. It's just impossible to do. So what he said was, you see from this this case, and this the law of this soldier in the Asha Shifas Torah, this uh, beautiful captive woman, that when the Torah held that a person wasn't able to withstand a challenge, then it said, okay, it took steps to deal with that, which implies that we can infer from that that in all the, whenever else the Torah says you can't do something or you have to do something, that is, it is within our ability to do it. And that's why that law is on the books. That's why the Torah did did say that you can or can't, or you have to or, or can't do something. We, we can we can keep the Torah. It is, if the Torah says it, it, is it is within our abilities. The mitzvah of Hashavah Saveda, of returning lost objects, is in our Parsha. There are some fascinating stories in the Gemara and the Midrashim that talk about the rabbis of the Gemara, the extent that they went to to properly return someone's lost object. So the Torah, first of all, says... When you see one of the animals of your fellow man that are nidachim, they're lost, basically, and you want to hide, you want to just pretend you didn't see it. You don't want the trouble of taking it with you and finding the owner. You have to return them to your fellow man. You must surely return them. So the Torah is like encouraging us, don't neglect your obligation to return the lost item. One interesting story is about Rabbi Chanina Mendoza. And both of these stories that I'm going to share with you are about Chachamim. They're about rabbis that were famous for their piety. They were they were, they were big tzaddikim. Some of the things they did might have been basic halacha. Some of the things they did might have been above the letter of the law. It's interesting to see how they dealt, how they related to this mitzvah. So basically, this the story goes that he found a hen in front of his house. So he took it into his house and he told his wife, don't use any of the eggs this hen lays. Okay, keep, let them, if they become chicks, let them, let them hatch. So what happened was that they laid, this, this hen laid a lot of eggs. Many of them hatched. Eventually, there were so many of them from this one, this one hen were taken over his, his house. He sold them, 
and he, he used the money to buy goats, which I guess are more controllable. Eventually, the guy who lost his hen passed by the house, and he said, he said to someone who was nearby, he said, I lost my hen here a year ago, whatever it was, and I wonder, I wonder if anyone found it. I wonder what happened to it. Rabbi Kleiner heard this, and he said, do you, can you identify, do you, can you tell me, how do I know what really was yours? You have a simon. You have a some type of evidence of what that was yours. He said he did, and he told them the identifying features of that of that particular hen, and he gave them the goats. He blew heavily around. They were feeding these chickens, feeding these goats for all this time until he took it back. Now, did, did he have to get reimbursed for feeding it? Probably. I mean, I don't know the halachas offhand, but you have to really take care of someone's item as if it's your own. The next story is about Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair. Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair lived in the south, which, as far as I can tell, doesn't have any particular relevance to this story, but he lived in the southern part of Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. There were two paupers, two Aniyim, who came there to look for jobs, to look for work. They had some barley that they were carrying with them. They had sosayim, which is a volume measurement. It's about 26 liters. So you picture about 13 two-liter bottles of soda. They had that much barley with them, and they said, could you hold on to this while we're, we're going to be walking around looking for work here? We can't carry all this barley with us. Could you hold on to it for us? So he held on to it for them, and they forgot it there, and they, they left. So guess what he did? He took the barley, and he planted it every year. He planted their barley, and then he would harvest it, and he would put it into a silo. Seven years later, they came back and they said, these paupers came back. They said, do you, do you keep, we have that barley back that we left here a few years ago. He recognized them and he said, you have to bring some camels and donkeys because you got a lot of barley to bring back with you. So he said, come and take your, your silo full of barley. Again, according to Halakha, I'm sure you could just keep the barley in a dry place and wait for them to come back. Maybe you can sell the barley and just keep the money for them. I don't know exactly how you would handle this, but Rabbi Pinchas Vinyar went above and beyond what he had to do. One of the mitzvahs in this parsha, Ki kore kansi por lefanecha, if there should happen to be the nest of a bird before you, you want to take the eggs, and the mother bird is roosting on the eggs, or if it's young, or if they're already hatched, or there's young birds there, so it says, So if you're going to take either the hatchlings or the eggs, you have to send away the mother before doing so. So this is one of the two positive commandments in the Torah. There's 248 positive commandments in the Torah. This is one of the only two that the Torah gives a reward, a specific reward. The Torah says, if you do, you listen to the mitzvahs, you listen to the Torah, you keep the commandments, you're going to get all kinds of blessings, you're going to have good things happen to you, but it doesn't give specifics, uh, especially for specific commandments. There are two that it does give specifics for, and the reward that it gives for both of those two commandments is identical. It says, Laman yitavlach, so that will be good for you, the yamim, and you will prolong your days. What's interesting is, is that the Mishnah, and I believe it's at the end of Kulin, says that this is the easiest mitzvah to do. Yeah, it's the, it's the easiest. It's really? the easiest, because it doesn't cost anything. All it does is you just have to wave your hand to chase away the mother bird. Another point it makes, and it's, it's, a, it's an interesting story. We won't go into it right now. It says that when it says it gives you long life, 
it has to be talking about the world to come. It means that you'll merit the world to come, eternal life. It's talking about eternal life. The fact that none of the other mitzvot, except for one, the other the other mitzvah, by the way, the other the other positive mitzvah that the reward is stated with is keep it up aim is honoring parents. Why aren't the rewards for all the other positive commandments listed specified? Why is it why why is it left open? Why isn't why isn't the Torah tell you what the reward will be? Why don't it specify reward for all the various mitzvahs? So the other two hundred forty six mitzvahs. One reason could be because it doesn't want us to focus on the reward. He wants us to do mitzvahs because it's the right thing to do because we have gratitude to the Almighty for what he does for us. We want to listen to him, we want to get back to him. That's the way we express that. But there's something else which really kind of is related to the idea that the commandments grant us some type of benefit which might not might not be detectable by us, but it contributes somehow to building us in some way. Listen to this this uh, interesting medrash. So it says a, it's, an, it's really just an analogy. It says a king had a field. He wanted it to be planted with a lot of beautiful trees of all different types. He gave all these workers the different trees to, he gave them, I don't know if he gave them saplings, whatever it is. He said, go plant all these trees. Some of them, some of them he liked better than others. And he was planting, apparently, the analogy, according to this analogy, each one has a different value to him. He liked some trees, he, he liked some more than others. And I don't know if some are more beautiful, some provide fruit, but he didn't tell the workers which ones they get more money for planting. He just said, plant all these trees. Why did he do that? He said, because if he would have told them his preferences, he wanted that all these types of trees to be in, in his garden, in his field. If he would have told them what his preferences were, then he would just, it would be imbalanced. He would just have those trees that he was paying more for. So instead, he just said, plant all these trees, and then he would have a, a well-rounded garden. So the same story goes with the commandments that the Almighty gives us. If he would tell us, he wants us to do all of them. If he would tell us, these have a lot of reward, these have a little reward, and these have a teeny amount of reward. So then we would, we would neglect the ones that only have a small amount of reward. We only focus on the ones that have greater reward. So therefore, he, he didn't specify which are the more valuable mitzvot, which Rabbeinu Yonah actually quotes. He says in the second parak of Perkei Avos, Rabbeinu HaKadosh says in the, the, the first Mishnah, he says, Be careful about a light mitzvah like a heavy mitzvah, meaning be careful with a mitzvah that you think is not important, just like a mitzvah that's important. Meaning, as far as we know, we might see mitzvah A and think, oh, you know, that's not such a big deal. Mitzvah B, oh, that looks like a very serious mitzvah. Rebbe says, no, even the one that looks not as serious, treat it seriously. Because you don't know the reward of mitzvahs. The simple explanation of what that means, you don't know the reward of mitzvahs, is that is that we you just don't know which the Torah doesn't specify. It only specifies the reward for two mitzvahs. If it's part of those other 246, you don't know what the reward is. But Rabbeinu Yonah says, based on this mitzvah sending away the mother bird, and that the reward for that is an eternal reward, what this mission is actually saying is, mitzvahs is more of a rhetorical statement. It's saying, be careful even with mitzvahs that you think are unimportant, because even the smallest mitzvah, meaning of sending away the mother bird, has an unbelievable reward, and you don't know the reward of mitzvahs, meaning... 
the reward of mitzvahs is so great, even the smallest one, and therefore, by implication, all the mitzvahs are so great, so even the ones that look to you to be unimportant, they can't be worse than Shiluah HaKan, and that's an unbelievably great one, so even the smallest mitzvah has a great reward as well. There are different nations described in the Parsha that have limitations about joining the Jewish people. Meaning, they can convert, no problem. They can become Jews. However, they can't marry into the Jewish people. They have to marry into other converts for either a certain amount of generations or forever. Who are these people? So you have Ammon and Moab. They can never marry into the Jewish people. They always remain a separate sub-community within the Jewish people. We're talking about the men not being able to marry into the Jewish people. The women are. Even after ten generations, they're not allowed to marry into the Jewish people. An Edomi, an Edomite, meaning the descendants of Esav, they can marry in after three generations. And the same with Egyptians, Mitzri. And the Torah doesn't talk about converts from other nations. Rashi infers from the fact that you have to wait three generations if you're an Adomi or a Mitzri, that other nations are permitted to marry anyone they want right as, as soon as they convert. So today, everybody fits into this category anyway, but, uh, but biblically, this is, the, this is the picture. So the question is, what is the reason the Torah says these various restrictions? It really says it, it says it right out in the Torah regarding the Ammonim and Moavim, it says, For the reason that they did not come out to greet you with bread and with water, on the road when you were leaving Egypt. So that's reason number one. They didn't give you bread and water. And secondly, and Ramban, by the way, points out that it was Ammon that didn't give them bread and water. And that he hired against you, and this is referring to the Ramban says Amon, as Bilam ben Boar, Bilam the son of Boar, mi Pesor, Aram Narayim, from, from Pethor, Aram Narayim, that's where he came from, the Kalaleka, to curse you. The Moavim didn't provide us with the things we needed when we were traveling in the desert, and the, and the Ammonim, they tried to curse us using Bilam as their agent. The, and it says that Hashem turned the curse into a blessing because Hashem loves us. But this, this, it says, Do not seek their peace or their well-being all your days forever. That's the ones that are, that are never allowed to marry into the Jewish people. What about Edom and Mitzrayim? Edomi and Mitzri. There they're allowed to come and they're allowed to marry in after three generations. Rashi points out, you would think that the Edomim and the Mitzrim, you would think we should not be able to marry them at all, because Edom really attacked us. Edom attacked us when we were coming, when we were going on our way to Eretz Yisrael. And the Mitzrim, they threw the male babies into the Nile. So they murdered Jewish children. So why aren't they totally removed? Why are they allowed to, uh, after three generations, come to the Jewish people? The Torah says... Because you were a sojourner in his land, meaning we were guests in the land of Egypt. We were guests. So we're going to come back to this in a second. Before we even get to that, Rashi says that the what you see from here is, What's worse? Is it worse to murder someone? They're not alive anymore. They don't exist anymore, at least their body. 
or make them sin? Which would you say is worse? The person's still alive, but they sinned, or or they're dead now. What's worse to do to someone? Take away someone's life in this world, or is it worse to take away someone's life in the world to come? The world to come. Ammon and Moab tried to get the Jewish people to sin after the incident of Bilam. And they did, were successful, and some of the Jews did sin with the Minos Moab. So that's why that what they did is worse. They tried to take us out of Molam Haba. They tried to take us out of the world to come. Edom and Mitzrayim, they just killed us in this world. Yeah, so so that's what Rashi explains that the that that's the reason for the discrepancy in their laws. One those two nations that made us made us sin, they are forever uh, can't mix into the Jewish people. The ones that just that just killed us, so to speak, we don't welcome them with welcome arms. There's some restriction, but eventually they are allowed to come into the Jewish people. Ramban says something very interesting about Ammon and Moab, who didn't provide us with food and who tried to curse us with Bilam. He says that that's not really the reason that Torah is so strict about them. He says they're descendants of Lot. Avraham had saved the father of their nation, saved Lot, and the mothers of their nation, his two daughters, from being captives and from being killed in the war of the five versus the four kings. He also, it was also because of the merit of Avram Avinu that they were saved from the destruction of Sodom and Amorah. What that teaches us is, that's why the Torah deals with them so strictly. Even if they convert, who can never fully become part of the Jewish people? People who don't have gratitude. Ingratitude is totally incompatible with the Torah. It's totally incompatible with Jewish life. Jewish people have to have gratitude. That's the lesson here. And that is brought out even stronger when you think about Edom and Mitzrayim. Because it says, even though Edom tried to attack us when we left Eretz Israel, even though the Egyptians killed, murdered our babies, type of level of genocide, we still, because it says, Ki ger because you were a sojourner in their land. You lived in their land in a time of difficulty. This is a mind-blowing thing to think about because everybody teaches their kids to say thank you. Gratitude is a basic of good manners, morals, any decent person expresses gratitude. You teach your children to have gratitude. But the Torah's concept of gratitude is dramatically, incredibly extreme. And that's brought out by three points about this idea that Torah says, that we can't completely distance the Mitzri in particular because we we were in their land. Rashi used the language, Achsanya Bishasa Dechak. They were our hotel. They were our hosts in a time of difficulty. What was the time of difficulty? There was the Great Famine that hit all the lands. It hit Eretz Canaan, and it hit Mitzrayim as well. But they had prepared for it, thanks to Yosef, and they provided hospitality to Yaakov and his family during that time. That's how they all ended up there. So these three remarkable aspects of this gratitude that we're required to have to the Mitzrayim are as follows. And the two of these are brought out by Rav and then there's one additional point. First of all, there what we see from here is, is that you have to have gratitude even for partial good. Partial good, meaning if someone is good to you, but they're also really bad to you, you still have to appreciate the good. This is not something that you would necessarily think of on your own. You might think, 
this person was really bad to me. I don't care if they did some good things to me. I'm not going to thank them for the good things. They were terrible to me. No. According to the Torah, if they're at least partially good to you, you still have a debt of gratitude to them. They afflicted us in general. They enslaved us. Avodas perech, back-breaking, laborious labor. They drowned, as we said many times, they drowned the male children in the Nile. Even these horrific atrocities don't exempt us from recognizing that they helped us as well. The most negative, despicable, murderous, criminal behavior does not and cannot nullify and cancel the good. That's one thing we see from this law that we we can't totally reject the Egyptians because of the debt of gratitude we have. Point number two, the Gemara points out in Brachos, the Egyptians didn't host us in their land for our benefit. They did it for their own benefit. Because Paro said, when Yosef says that his brothers are coming down, he says, tell me about your brothers. Are any of them like, really strong? Are any of them talented shepherds? I need people to help me out in my government. If they could take on some jobs, let me know. I mean, he was looking... He, was, he wanted to bring people in so he could take care of the things he needed to take care of for his own benefit. So nevertheless, the Torah still says whatever good they did for it, even if it was not for the best of intentions, that doesn't exempt us either from, having, from appreciating that, from having gratitude for that. And the third aspect that is remarkable about our obligation to have gratitude to the Egyptians is that our debt of gratitude to other people is not a function of time or generation. Meaning, when you make a digital copy of an audio recording or of a video recording, the duplicate is just as good as the original. The copy is as good as the original. If you copy analog media, a cassette tape or a VHS tape, then the copy that you make is degraded. The quality is not as good. You lose something every generation that you proceed away from the original, the quality gets lower and lower. It's called generational loss. There's no generational loss regarding gratitude we have towards other people. It's unlimited duration, and it's not limited by generation. It spans generations. You see that Amon and Moab, you see this in two places in this in this topic here. Amon and Moab were expected to have gratitude to the Jewish people because the forefather of their nation, Lot, had gratitude to the forefather of the Jewish people. Meaning, that was hundreds of years before this, and still they were required to treat us more kindly because of how Avraham treated Lot. And you see the same with the Egyptians. We're expected forever to have gratitude to the Egyptians because... They provided that achsanya, they provided that hospitality for us in the time that we needed it. The rabbis actually lived this way. I'll give you one example. Rabbi Chia was married to a woman who was out to get him. I think she used to intentionally serve him the food that he didn't want. She'd say, honey, what do you want tonight? So he'd say, pizza. And so she'd bring him hamburgers. He'd say, honey, what do you want tonight? Hamburgers. She'd serve him pizza. But he still, in spite of the terrible way she treated him, he treated her lovingly. He used to bring her home things that he got in the market. One of his Talmidim, Rav, said, she gives you such a hard time, why are you rewarding her behavior, so to speak? Why are you so nice to her? 
he said a, a line that's somewhat famous. He says, Dayenu shemegadlos espanenu umatsilos osanu minachit. It's enough, meaning how whatever a person's wife does to him and however bad she treats him, and by the way, this is obviously vice versa for either spouse, it's enough that they raise our children and save us from sin. Meaning, yes, she treats him poorly and she there's a lot of negativity going on, but there are also positive things that she's doing, and he owes her a debt of gratitude at the very least for those benefits that he enjoys in the relationship, so he still has to recognize that. There's a little point I think is interesting. The Torah says, if you take collateral from someone for a loan, person borrows money from you and you say you want something as collateral in case they don't pay you back you'll keep it so they give you their blanket their down comforter it's a valuable item the torah says if that person is poor it says if a man who is poor if he's a man who's poor do not sleep with his security meaning don't keep it with you overnight. If he gave you something like a blanket that he needs on a daily basis because he doesn't have extra, he doesn't have an extra blanket, you have to give it back to him. You come take it back the next morning when he's not using it as your security. But if he needs the security, if he needs the mashkon, if he needs the collateral, you have to give it back to him. Hashev tashiv lo vote. You shall certainly return to him the security, the collateral. Kivo Hashemesh with the setting of the sun. Vishachav bisalmaso so that he may sleep in his garment and he will bless you. And for you it'll be an act of righteousness before Hashem your God. So it says that he's going to sleep with his garment and bless you for that. Meaning he's going to appreciate that you gave him his down comforter back. So he'll sleep with that. He'll say, he'll say thank you very much and he'll bless you. You'll benefit from him blessing you. This is something that only... Rabbi Victor Miller could point out. Rabbi Victor Miller was a was a rabbi in Brooklyn, a mashgiach and yeshiva serving in Berlin for many years, and he is famous for his appreciating all of the chazde Hashem, all the kind things Hashem does for us. He says this is a model of proper behavior to bless the one that enabled you to sleep under a blanket. This is a total side point, but he sees in this. An important lesson that if we sleep under a blanket, if we sleep with our head on a pillow, do we appreciate that God gave us that gift of having a pillow to sleep on, of having a blanket to cover us? However you think about this, if you want to think about the miracle of your cotton sheets, that there's such a comfortable fabric called cotton, all you need is some dirt, air, cotton seeds, and water. And lots of sun. Miracle of miracles. There's a plant called the cotton plant that grows cotton, and you can that'll eventually become your sheets. However you think about it, just like this poor person, it says, so that he may sleep in his garment and he will bless you. We should also have the same attitude when we enjoy the benefits that we have, particularly the things that we sleep with. Do you know if the Torah prohibits hitting someone? The Torah prohibits hitting someone. It's a negative commandment. It's called lo yosef, don't add. And I'll tell you what that means in a second. But it's actually a biblical prohibition to hit someone. 
And the way we know that, the source that we have for that, is that one of the punishments that Besdin, that the Jewish court, when it played this role, had, one of the punishments that it administered, was lashes. There are different circumstances that require different amounts of lashes to be administered, but the maximum is 39. You can't do more, you can't, the Besdin can't administer more than 39 lashes. And it says, Lo Yosef, he shall not add, meaning you cannot add a 40th lash to this person who's getting the maximum amount of lashes. Pen Yosef Lako, so lest he further strike him, Al Ela, beyond these, Makarabba, a blow that is severe, Venikla, Chichalinecha, and your brother will be degraded before your eyes. The Torah even prohibits hitting someone who deserves to be hit. They did some type of sin that lets the court administer this punishment on them. You can't give them one extra slap with the, you know, with the whip, one extra lash. Kavachomer, I mean, all the more so for someone who is not, they weren't administered any punishment by the court. You're just hitting someone. You're not allowed to hit them from this same prohibition of Lo Yosef. If someone hits you, you're allowed to hit them back in self-defense, so they'll stop hitting you. But without that situation, you're not allowed, it's a negative prohibition to hit someone.